Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Mr. Garrett Dutton, better known as G Love. He started out as a street musician in his native Philadelphia before moving to Boston and eventually forming G Love and Special Sauce in 1993. The trio immediately established its distinctive sound, delivering their signature blend of blues and hip-hop through Jeffrey Clemens on drums, Jim Prescott on upright bass, and G-Love on guitar, harmonica, and vocals. 23 years later, they're still going strong, and their musical gumbo is enriched with rock, funk, soul, and Latin flavors. Let's start by listening to a snippet from their song, Let's Have a Good Time, featuring Ozomatli, from their latest album, Love Saves the Day. just listening to uh let's have a good time with uh, ozo motley man what a great song oh i was just playing it because um on this tour we're gonna do something cool like, which we never did before which was is play the whole new record as the first set so i've just been actually just shedding out getting it all together there's two great guitar players that join us on this record um raul from ozo motley and david hidalgo from los lobos so i'm wow. working on this the solos that those guys ripped. <laughs> my ass I saw you play with uh, Kebmo at um, at Stubbs here in Austin. I want to say a few months ago, and it was it was a fantastic show, man. Yeah, that was cool. Man. That was a nice, fun night. Uh, Gary Clark. Yeah, I was, was I was standing crowd. right next to him when he was in the crowd before you called him up. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, he was over there. So I was like, oh, you know, man, I can't just let him stand over there. I got to put it has to work. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I know you're super busy. You're constantly on the road, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to take this call. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. I understand that prior to getting into blues music and, and hip-hop, you were deeply into Bob Dylan and the Beatles. How were you first exposed to their music? Yeah, well, my mom had a um, small but pretty amazing record collection that basically, I think her tastes and what she had really put some serious roots in my music. So she had Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume 1 and then the White Album, the Beatles' White Album. She had Dr. John's In the Right Place in the Wrong Time. She had the Greatest Hits of Donovan. And those especially, and then there was like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. There was Bob Marley Legends. And oh no, it wasn't Bob Marley Legends. It was Bob Marley Rastaman Vibration, which is such a killer, killer record. And, uh, you know, there was some, and, there's some other ones, but those were the main ones that really had an impact on me. And um, especially, yeah, early on, the first, well, I was started taking guitar lessons at a young age, at eight years old, and I was terrible. Matter of fact, so the first, I started getting the hang of it as I became 12 and 13. And the first time I put on that Beatles White album was because 
my guitar teacher was teaching me how to play Rocky Raccoon. Now I couldn't figure out how to get the words right over the first part of the, the intro, which is the talking intro, you know? Uh-huh. So, um, that's the first thing I put on that white album was to learn how that Rocky raccoon went. And then, you know, that record took me on a whole journey. So yeah, the, but the Bob Dylan record as well, those records had a huge impact on me. Did anyone else in your family play any musical instruments? My uncle Bob, he passed away, but, uh, he, uh, he, he wasn't a blood relative, but he was like my favorite uncle. And, uh, we, um, he would, he played guitar. So at the holidays, we would always play Christmas carols and old rock and roll tunes for the family. So there was that mostly it was kind of self-taught and, you know, my family wasn't, they weren't a uh, really musical family. Matter of fact, it was more like a TV family, you know, like you come on the moms would have the nightly news on, you know, like that type of thing. So, um, my dad was kind of, uh, um, pretty poetic dude though. Like he would write these kind of epic poems mm-hmm. for people's birthdays and celebrations. So I think I did get a bit of my writing from, from my dad, but musically just kind of picked it up through playing music. Can you pinpoint the moment when you decided that you wanted to make a career in music? Yeah, I can remember it. Um, I remember I was like 16 and I was going out with this girl named Sarah dry. And, um, you know, I was a pretty good kid, but, I only cut school twice, and um, one day, me and my girlfriend cut school, and um, we were sitting up by these buildings called the Towers in Philly, and uh, I was sitting on this little hill. It was probably like springtime, and I was eating my bag lunch, you know, that my mom would make for me and stuff, and I was saying, man, all I need is... um, I said, baby, all I need is this bag lunch and my guitar. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's all all I need to to live. And, uh, And I thought... I think that was kind of the, I, I had started writing songs around that time and was really finding a lot of expression through music as a teenager. And then I started, you know, playing the talent show and got a huge, huge response. And from there, I was like really kind of hooked on the crowd. I started thinking, man, I could be a star and, um, and just play music my whole life. And, you know, that would be my job and how cool would that be? So I kind of started working pretty seriously at that point towards, you know, making it happen. Of course, I didn't know how to make it happen, but I just practiced and wrote a lot, you know. And reading your bio, I know that you you were a street musician for a while. And uh, and I would imagine that that takes a lot of, of guts, a lot of confidence or a lot of just a lot of both, really. Were you, would you say you were a pretty confident kid back then when you headed out and, and you did that? Yeah, I mean, I was a pretty confident kid anyways, but um, yeah, I think that you're exactly, exactly right. I've always felt that, like, you know, you really take some balls to go out on the street and put yourself in that position because, you know, a lot of people look at street musicians as, like, homeless people or one step up from homeless people when, in fact, you know, a lot of street musicians, are that's their job, or there's a lot of kids out there that kind of do it to fund their music and hone their craft. And, and, you know, that's kind of how I looked at it as a kid. And it started as a joke, you know, um, I grew up in a neighborhood of Philadelphia and there's a street called South street. It was like the promenade street and everybody would be out there. Black people, white people, punk rockers, gay people, rich people, poor people, every type of wild, crazy freak was out there. And there was a lot of street performance going on. Everything from puppeteers to magic shows to 
folk guys, drum circles, a guy playing wine glasses and playing Mozart on them. <laughs> and it was still the time when there were these old-fashioned characters. Like, there was this guy named Big Al, and he was like, had no teeth left in his mouth, and he would sit out there on a milk crate and play the spoons and the harmonica. And, um, you know, I'd always put up, my dad would give me a quarter or whatever to put in his hat. So, you know, I grew up watching this. So one night, you know, we maybe had smoked a joint or something, me and my buddies, and then we sat out front of my house and started playing on the street. And then, you know, we made like 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. And this is like 1986 or something. And I'm like, holy shit, we made 20 bucks, mm-hmm. you know? So that was pretty cool. And then it gave me a thought, man, like, so Friday night when some of my friends would go, you know, out to the woods and go find a keg party or something, I would just say, hey, man, why don't we just go play it on the street and, you know, we can get some beers or whatever and make some money and, you know, make a night out of it. So I started doing that and then I do it on my own. And that's the thing about high school. Like, I definitely had some talented kids that I was playing music with, but it's just a focused thing to get kids to focus in on stuff. So I, I was super focused. You know, I just kept with the music thing and I'd go out there and as time went on, I got more and more serious about, okay, this is my thing that I do. I play out on the street and I was pretty cool. But that was pretty cool. I read that you, uh, you decided at one point that you had too many distractions in Philly and you wanted to move someplace where you could continue doing that, continue playing, and uh, you ended up moving to the Boston area and uh, met your future bandmates and uh, and started playing at the Plow and Stars in Cambridge. Yeah. And then you, you were getting paid 125 bucks a night uh, to just jam-pack the club, uh, but feeling like you were just selling out the biggest stadiums. Did you Were you on, on cloud <laughs> nine at this point? Yeah, man. That was, you know, like my life's been amazing because of music and that was certainly one of the best years of my life that year that and it was 92 uh, i met my drummer after i played so i had a street musician friend and um he called me one night i was at my job i was like phone canvassing for a peace organization called peace action you know making canvassing calls to people and i was at my job and i got a call from this guy fordham and he said hey our um, opening act canceled tonight. Can you come do this gig? Said, yeah, of course. Let me ask my boss. So, hey, Sarah, can I go? Oh, yeah, you can go. So I got on my skateboard and went, got my gear and went to the gig. And, you know, I'm here I am. I'm thinking, this going to be a huge opportunity. I get to the club and I'm playing a set for an empty room that consists of the bartender, the waitress, the sound guy, the band I'm opening up for, and one dude who was the waitress's boyfriend <laughs> who was looking through the help wanted, um, and that was my drummer, Jeff. So after the gig, Jeff came, and I you know, I got on stage and played my heart out, did my set, and did my thing, and after Jeff came, I was like, hey, that was really good. You know, I liked it. Oh, yeah, thanks, whatever, you know. Started walking away, he goes, I'm a drummer. Oh, you're a drummer. So then we sat and talked for a couple of hours till I missed my train. And he gave me a ride home, and I had a demo that was pretty well done. And he kind of was like, all right, you know, this kid's got his shit together. So he said, all right, you know what? I'll start a band with you, but I'm not going to do anything else than play the drums. So I'm mm-hmm. not, Because he had, he had tried to get a deal with his last band and really had gotten his heart broken. Because they got, like, the cover of CMJ, and they got about as close to getting a record deal without getting one as you could get. So he was like... 29 and super jaded. Mm-hmm. So 
I said, all right, well, I'm doing this. So, yeah, we put the band together. We had our first rehearsal in my basement in Jamaica Plains in Boston. And Jeff recorded it. And it's cool because the thing about it was, was that from our first rehearsal, the sounds of the upright bass, the wooden dobro, and actually Jeff was playing brushes on an empty case of beer. Mm-hmm. And um, we had this sound like from the very beginning. And so, yeah, we started playing gigs. So Mark Sandman, rest his soul from morphine. He didn't like my drummer very much, but his girlfriend, I, I had a crush on his girlfriend. She said, Hey Mark, check out G love. So Mark kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And when they hit the road with their big record, he said, Hey, call Noel at the plow and stars and ask him for our Monday night. So yeah, we walked in the plow and stars the first Monday and they have a bunch of regulars there and they go, Oh, before we even play the lick, they go, you know, uh, we don't really like your kind of music. So um, <laughs> can you just not play too loud, <laughs> you know? Make it short. And then and then by the end of that gig, we had the house rocking. And then, yeah, over that course of that year, you know, we went from having just the regulars to having, you know, lines out of the block. And it was, you know, no cover. We get paid 125 bucks for the whole band and sandwiches and, you know, whatever we could drink from the bar. Until they found out I was under 21 and then I could only drink at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was, uh, that was just a great time because everything was coming together and it was really a lot of power in the music and a lot of excitement on a local level. And we knew we had something special. So it was, I'm, I'm really fond of that time in my life. I read that it, it didn't take long for for you to get your record deal. It took about nine months. And, and to be clear, nine months of really hard work and, and really hustling. But uh, after nine months, you got your deal. I asked you if, if you could pinpoint the moment when you thought you wanted to make a career in music. Is there a similar moment when you would say you thought you you were established or – no, I don't want to say made it, but you know what? Something that validated that choice and made you feel like you were on the right path? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was two. One was like, I was, I had gone to college for a year and then I told my parents like, you know, I want to um, take a year off and pursue my music. And so that we had a little family deal, like, all right, you know, take a year off, but apply to um, Boston University for the next fall. So, you know, I had done that and gotten accepted and I wrote this great essay, which ended up kind of being the foundation of the song Blues Music, which was our first single. By that fall, I told my parents, hey, you know, things are starting to really roll with the band. And we had, we were close to getting a record deal. So obviously I wasn't going back to college then. So that was the first moment when they were like, yeah, you know, you stick, see what happens here. And then, and then I remember when I, I remember being in my drummer's loft. So he lived in a studio loft in Austin, which is a rock and roll neighborhood in Boston. And uh, I got a, call from a manager and he said oh you know we got a deal with epic records We're, we've signed to epic records and like i started crying because uh and i remember it was just jeff and i and i was broke down in tears and i, and I was because it was just like wow you know here i was i was 20 years old it was like a dream come true like you still put in so much work to get this thing and then i, I didn't know why i was crying i think i was crying because uh you know, the happiness and the joy of achieving that huge thing in my life. And I was also like, I, I didn't know how things were going to change. 
mm-hmm. but I knew that things were going to change forever and nothing was ever going to be the same again. So that was a pretty profound moment, you know? For sure. Yeah. I read an interview in which you said that when you were younger, you were strong-willed and, uh, and a purist. And that because of that, and I'm quoting now, we made some great music, but also missed some opportunities. If I could go back, I would do a lot of the same, but some things differently. Can you elaborate on, yeah. on how you were more of a purist back then? I think like, you know, we, we as a band were really kind of learned from the records, uh, all the masters, you know, whether it's Bob Dylan or John Lee Hooker or the fellas loving, you know, all the bebop, John Coltrane and Miles Davis and everything. Um, and the classic rock and roll we love, like the Stones and Beatles and Neil Young. All these records were made, you know, live and they were all such profound records. And when we came uh, into recording our stuff, everything was becoming so contrived, maybe less than it is now, but even so, uh, like the video era, I, for instance, you know, making a video was something that I didn't, I I was not okay with lip syncing. You know, Mm -hmm. I was not okay with overdubbing my vocals in the studio. Everything had to be a live take. It had to be a captured performance of the band. And we didn't want to loop anything. We didn't want to have any samples. And this was the age of the early nineties when hip hop was all over samples. And then, you know, you had Beck coming out at the same exact time. He was doing some white boy rap as well, but his record was completely samples. I mean, it was, I'm not knocking it, but I'm just saying we were like, no, our thing is pure music. You know, something that we're really proud about and, you know, stood by and, and no gimmicks, all natural, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And that was something we live and die by. And it came to the point where, you know, we got the opportunity to make our first videos. Well, we're going to make a video for our hit called Cold Beverage. And, um, you know, there was this big video director who had done Madonna and a lot of huge videos called named Mark Romantic. And he said he would do the video for us for a new band. So obviously we couldn't afford it, but he basically did it for nothing. And, and in that video, I said, well, I'm not going to lip sync. So <laughs> it's just funny. The labels had so much loot then. And we were a bit of a priority at that point. So they said, okay, they got a sound studio and a truck out to the video location. And the video is of us playing live on the street. Mm-hmm. And so that's a live take. So that was, a, so that's like one of the things I talk about. When I'm saying I might've done things differently because it's a great video, but the sound is super raw and it's playing against like Nirvana and Pearl Jam videos and Beck videos on MTV and it sounds like it's recorded on the, on the street, excuse me, because it is, you know? Right. And so we're like, maybe if that video was the record version, we would have got more spins and therefore more records. So as it was, it helped us a lot. And then there was other opportunities that I passed on, whether it was like commercial for cigarettes in Eastern Europe. I remember Philip Morris came and they were like, you know, we want to use cold beverage for just, commercial for cigarettes and okay well tell them i'm not gonna do it unless they give us a million bucks mm-hmm. you know that type of thing well no we didn't get that and eddie murphy um like dr doolittle two 
or something. He wanted us to be the band in it. And I was like, hell no, I'm not being a stupid band in some movie. And I probably, I definitely would have done that again now. <laughs> you right. know, There's a lot of stuff when, when you first come out, you know, you're a kid and you don't know. And like, you think everything's always going to be this hot. Um, and I don't want to make any kind of compromises to what we do aesthetically or musically. So we didn't. And then, you know, over the years you get your ass kicked a little bit and you start realizing or compromising more to be a team player. So, you know, something gets lost, but something gets gained and, you know, you learn your lessons and eventually you come to peace with the business side of the music and the music side of the music. And if you find a way to balance that, then you can have an effective thing. So I finally did. And that was good. And you touch on something um, interesting, which is that had, I mean, you just identified some of the opportunities that perhaps you would not have passed on or, or some of the things that, that you think you could have gained had you done things differently. But had you done things differently, perhaps you wouldn't have the following, the connection you have to your fan base. You wouldn't, I mean, things would have been differently, but not necessarily in a good way, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, you, you, I look back on my career and I say, well, you know, I've made more money than some and I've made a lot less than some, you know, of our peers. And then you see along the way, a lot of bands that were above you are gone. And a lot of bands that were below you are huge stars. And, um, you know, so you always can question yourself, well, what if I did this? Would I have a lot more money or a bigger following now? And, you know, I, I think that, you know, you nail it on the head. It's like, well, you made your choices and because of that, um, you got respect, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of the most important thing you can have as a musician is respect from other musicians and the public. And if you stay true to what you do, then you're, you're going to not lose them. And I think over the years, like I did make mistakes by compromising or, you know, maybe trying to get too pop or crafty in the studio and some stuff and maybe made some mistakes like that. I think the times that I've messed up are the only times that I kind of put something above the music, like money or like, let's get a hit single. You know, I got to write something super catchy and this is what's good this year. Let's do something like this. And, you know, so kind of chasing what else is going on. And yeah, so I think, uh, or sometimes I have made mistakes um, trying to be something that I wasn't. And then, you know, now, but I'm, I'm glad because at least I tried. And then, you know, I think the last three or four record, three records, especially we've really come back to like our original way of recording records and the original way of doing that, which is to really respect the music, commit to playing it live and being raw, keeping the music rugged and, that's when we benefit, you know, I, you know, some people are great at singing over like a highly produced track. I'm not, you know, and I can do that, but it doesn't feel right. Like, you know, I do what I do and we're lucky in the fact that out of all the shit out there, we do have an original sound that has maintained what it is and no, no one does what we do. So as long as we just do that and keep flipping it up with great songs that in our style, then I think we're in good shape. For sure. You've been writing songs for 30 plus years. Has it gotten any easier to write songs or is it the same as it's always been? 
I think that now when I write songs, well, I, for one thing, I'm a lot more critical, not in the process, but like after I write a song or if I'm writing a song and I, in the midst of writing it or honing in on it, you know what? This is not the real deal. Stop this. You know, um, I think that you get to a point, especially cause we got like, including all our bootlegs and EPs, you know, we have 20 or 21 or 22 recorded works out there. So, Hey man, I'm only going to put shit out if it's really good, you know? So let's make sure that when we write songs now, it has to start in a real place, right? So some sort of natural spark, which you grab out of thin air, or you hear somebody say a hook or a sticky line, or you hear in your head a melody or a groove idea that's super good, then I go with that and ride it out. So I think the the pro, the process itself is very similar to how I've always written songs, which I think the best songs should be easy and it should come from a, a inspired moment. And that can be a very fleeting moment. So you have to catch no one that's happening to catch it, whether you're falling asleep or you're drunk or you're pissed off or you're crying or you're laughing or whatever it is, catch that moment, record it, write it down. And then when it comes time to getting in the zone and writing some tunes, you got all this initial true inspirational stuff. And in that way you're able to get a song. And then over the years as a songwriter, your craft as being able to write a song deepens and just be a harder critic so that you don't just let anything out there. What about writing lyrics? Has that gotten easier over time? You know, lyrics is something that, again, like I think my best songs have always come really easily. I think, I think sometimes I'm guilty. I've been guilty of not pushing myself as hard on a lyrical side um, or struggling with finding things to say or, or falling into a trap or keep writing about the same things or not using a diverse um, enough rhyme schemes or vocabulary or poetry. You know, that's something also that I pushing myself more to like, or let's, if we're going to write this song, kind of think about it more like a story, like what's the song about? What, what's the main point you're trying to convey? And then make a beginning, a middle and an end. Like you would as if you're writing a short story or a story and, you know, trying to be as descriptive, trying to be as original, trying not to put any throwaway rhymes or blatantly over and over and over used words that get used in a lot of songs, you know, like the word, everything's going to be all right, or it's all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of course, like ten, five out of 10 hits have the words, it's all right. You know? <laughs> so trying to push yourself to stay away from those traps that you could fall into as a writer. Actually, there's a great essay by George Orwell called why I write. I read that in high school and I, I go back to that sometimes to, it has like a lot of foundations of what a writer should and shouldn't do. Yeah. And also the, the more you read, um, I find the more, the better you write as well. So kind of always trying to keep learning and not be cliche. You touch on something interesting to me. And, uh, the first guest on the show, Ian Moore talked about this quite a bit, which is 
how he he feels that just living life, listening, uh, getting quiet, that's where he finds his inspiration. And I'm wondering if you just with, you know, constantly being on the road, just being as busy as you are, if you manage to find time to to do that, or if you find that that helps you, you know, reading, just breaking away from actively focusing on music, does that serve as inspiration? And do you find the time to do that? That's a really smart thing, actually. And actually, that's something that I'm finally, after all these years of really working hard, kind of taking the foot off the gas a little bit, especially when I come home to kind of you know, decompress from the music and get away from it and not put the pressure on myself. Oh, you know, I haven't written a song this week. You know, like let the real moments come. That's kind of what I was trying to say, but that's, that's a better way to say it. Yeah. Like finding that quiet times where, yeah, you're just living your life, right. And experiencing things and seeing things and just turn off that writer in you for a minute and bring out the listener uh, or the, and the record, like the recorder in you and let yourself open up a little bit and not have that pressure and then, you know, then you do get those little sparks. And again, that's, that's all you need to have a song, like a line. Like I, one that's in my head right now is, um, you know, you need time to grow up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've kind of been kicking that one around for a year and a half or so. And that's one I'm kind of working on a little bit. And then, and then also the other thing that's helpful is if you can free yourself up vocally, a lot of great writers a lot of great writers that I know get a groove going, right? And then they scat over the groove mm-hmm. and then they lay out the melody and the rhythm of the lyrics in this kind of inspired off the cuff kind of way. And then they say, Oh, well, that sometimes leads to singing some kind of hook. And then, you know, then you fill it in with the words. And that's something I've experimented with as well. And that comes from being open and more comfortable vocally to just go out on a limb and start, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Letting shit fly, so I do that. But yeah, I definitely um been doing that in the past couple of years. Like, yo, man, you just toured for two months and made a record before that. So let's take you know, take a month and just hang out, and you don't need to worry about practicing guitar. I don't, you know, like actually this week I'm the exact opposite. I just spent the last four months like we had finished our summer and fall tour. The record was coming out. I got some solo acoustic t- little mini tours, but shoot, when I'm home the last couple of months, I didn't pick up the guitar at all except to jam with my kid. And then now I got all these little snippets of ideas and stuff. And this week, uh, like I got 10 days of just shedding at home and honing in for the tour. And that's kind of leading to me picking up the pen as well. Do you uh, relish your time at home or do you get uh, antsy when you're off the road for a while or maybe both? I think both. Like, I do love to be at home. I find myself these days, like, I'm just worn out when I'm home. And I try and sleep a lot and cook, you know, and watch TV and just not have the pressure of going on stage or being on the the recording studio. And that's nice. And again, it just takes, took years to be able to, like, all right, come home and just chill, chill out. You know, so, yeah, I I do do that now. I, I do come home and chill the fuck out and unwind and decompress and then, you know, get ready to hit it again. But it seems, I don't know how, but it seems like I'm like busier than ever these days. And I think I like to keep it that way, but I do feel I probably run myself around a little too much. Cause I, what I'll do is we'll have our regular tours and then I'll, 
go book myself these little mini tours without my team really knowing about like a tour in Hawaii or I'll go to Florida or somewhere I want to go or Costa Rica, somewhere I want to go surfing or hang out and play a gig to pay for the trip. So um, I do that kind of stuff and kind of do run around, but I like to live life and experience a lot. The prevailing opinion is that the internet decimated record sales and, and wrecked or transformed the record industry. But some people argue that the internet and technology also made it much easier for musicians to record their music, to collaborate with other musicians, to find an audience, to form a deeper connection with this audience, and thus make more money playing live. As a result of forming that deeper connection and getting people that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to connect or reach in the past, has this been the case for you? Yeah, I mean, everything you just said, the obvious thing is yes, it's decimated record sales to the point where every time you put out a record, no matter how good it is or how much people seem to think it's great online, no one buys it. So to the point where I don't even know whether I have a record label anymore, you know? Um, and it's not because they don't want me to still make records. It's just that no one buys any records. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this record sale numbers are like, I mean, it's almost embarrassing because you make this record and you put everything you have into it and then you put it out, you, all this lead up to the record, like, you know, you had back in the day and like, wow, we got great press and getting some radio spins and, oh, everyone's feeling really great about it. And then the first week comes out, oh, you sold 5,000 records. What? Or you sold 3,000 records. Oh, I mean, that's like, you know, it's embarrassing almost. But then you look at it and say, well, no one's selling records, so... And then you have, well, you know, you have your streaming things, Spotify. And, I'm, and when I say buying records, I mean digitally as well as physically. No right. one buys anything, period, anymore. And actually, our latest record, I noticed that more than ever. Oh, my God, it's crazy. So it kind of begs the question, is how are you going to pay for making a record? I mean, because at some point, you know, you got it. We've cut down our budgets tremendously. We used to make a record for $300,000 in six months. And now we make a record in six days for $30,000, you know, but that's still money that you have to make back and you have to make money to put it out. Now I'm not angry about it. I'm just stating facts. There's a lot of noise out there. So yeah, anybody can record a pretty good sounding record, especially if you're making like digital music like EDM or any type of looping or beats. Anybody can sit in their room, whether it's my 15-year-old son or his 70-year-old granddad, and make a record in their living room. But you can't really record a... Well, I guess you can. You can record a live band through two mics into your computer and probably come up with something pretty great. But the point is you do need to pay musicians and you do need to get everybody into that same room and there are expenses to make a record. So that's something that you wonder about. Like every time I make a record now, I think, wow, this could be the last record we ever make, you know? Um, and that's a real thing. You know, luckily for us, we've always survived on the road and that's where we've made pretty much all of our money from, and we haven't gotten rich, but you know, we've made a nice life for ourselves and worked a lot and been everywhere around the world playing music. And that's what we continue to do. But again, and yes, has the internet helped that? Big time. Sure, yeah. But it also hurts it because there's a million different things people could do to sit at home 
related to music or video games or watching movies or anything else that keeps them from leaving the house in the first place. Right. So you can talk to any band and or anybody in the touring industry and that whole industry is down. It's not like that industry is getting better, you know, as record sales goes down. That industry is getting worse as well. You know, furthermore, I talk about the noise. So because of the fact anybody can record, right, is different in the 90s when I was like the last generation of musicians to get a legitimate record deal where you had to have a great demo and a great live performance to cut through the noise to get your foot in the door and maybe get a record deal. But nowadays, you don't need a record deal. So anybody and everybody can go make a record. So they do. And so there's a million records on SoundCloud and Spotify. So there's a million different choices. And a lot of those bands go on the road. So, you know, again, you have a lot more competition in the touring marketplace. So whereas people used to say, oh, I'll go see, well, there's five shows coming to town this month. I've already seen G-Love 15 times. I'm going to go see someone else this time, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to keep putting on, like, I think you have to, like, put more and more in your show and your records than ever before. It's super highly focused to make the highest quality record and the greatest live performance every night you have to be on point and leave the people feeling inspired and happy and that's our job you know and that's great but it's certainly a challenge the last thing i'll say is we never really got the winning lottery ticket as a band to have like the, that hit single that would you know make you like an overnight superstar and a millionaire you know that was always something though whenever you put a record out you know, like I remember we had this record, The Hustle, and there was a single called Astronaut. And I said, man, this is a hit. And my kid was like two and walking down by the seashore looking at this house on the beach. I said, Aiden, that's going to be our house next year when this record comes out. <laughs> that's the one we're going to get, man, whatever. But, you know, now nowadays it's like there's no more lottery ticket. Like when you get a record out, right. you know, it's not like unless you're like the weekend or Adele that kind of comes with something that takes the whole world by storm. And that still can happen, but it's a lot more rare now to have a huge, huge hit and become an overnight star. So you got to work for it. And if you do that, you got to love it. So everything I say, I'm just saying how it is. I'm not trying to sound like I'm complaining about it, but it's, it's a constantly changing industry. It's like the wild west and it's got to put your head down and you got to turn it up if you want to keep doing it, you know? I've had a number of guests talk about how, yeah, every now and then they might be, you know, running low on energy, but usually by the time they start performing, it restores them. It cal recalibrates their, their mindset. And within, you know, a few bars of performing, they're kind of back to a, a good space. Do you have a similar experience? If you're having a bad day, once you start performing, does it usually manage to reset your mood? Yeah, man, absolutely. It's I, it's crazy. I talk about that a lot. Like, I, you know, it's like there's no business like show business. So even though, you know, your uncle died or your dog died or your girlfriend left you or you're sick or whatever it is, like the show must go on. Uh, and there's a lot of times when, you know, we do our regular schedule is, you know, four or five nights in a row, shows in a row, and then a day or two off. So we, you know, you get to that midweek, third and fourth show, and man, you're tired, you know, that's a lot of night. That's a lot of late nights and a lot of putting a lot of energy out there. That's hard to put a finger on. You know, there's nights that I'm worn out or I might even be not even wanting to go on stage. You're in a bad mood, but it's that thing, man. The minute you start playing and you get on stage, 
and I might even walk out to the stage pissed off. But the minute I start playing the guitar and singing and feel that beat come in and play a harmonica, then I get the hugest smile on my face. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm back, you know? And uh, and on top of that, you got the, the stage fright because, you know, I get that like every night and it can make me sick. You know, like my drummer makes fun of me because I got to like use the bathroom like right before I go on stage every <laughs> night. He's like, dude, what? He's like, we're 23 years in this. What's your fucking problem? I'm like, I don't know. I'll be right back. You know, it's a big thing, man. It's a big fucking thing to get on stage still. And it still takes like so much mental and physical will to like get out there and do this thing night after night. And um, there's a couple things that we do. And I think on tour, especially when you get on the bus, really get in a routine and there's a lot of comfort in that. And, uh, we're, you know, our, our trio, we're nappers. So I think after sound check, everyone gets a little bite and that's kind of you know, quiet nap time on the bus for the boys. Like we're all like in our bunks, mm-hmm. get a nap for a half hour, an hour, an hour and a half, whatever you need to do. And then I get up, I do a vocal warm up over the phone with my vocal coach, coach, I make my set list, which is kind of a ritual where I hand draw my set list out and then I have a drink and then I get my stage clothes on and I have a pre-show mantra that I read to myself, like an affirmation that I read. It takes me about five minutes to read it, but it's something I've written just about what I want my show to be and how I want to feel. And I read that to myself every night. And then we also, right before our stage manager announces us, you know, bring it in for a quick hug, maybe tell us a stupid joke or say something funny. And then we don't say like a prayer or something too heavy, but just that moment to come together and all right, let's have a great show. I think it helps us to just physically, you know, puddling up something in that is, you know, it's a simple, quick thing. It's kind of a special moment that even if we're mad at each other, We'll do it unless really pissed off at the drummer. Then I'll sometimes he and I get into it. <laughs> but it's mostly, even though no matter if we're in a big fight, like we always bring it in. And uh, I think that helps the show. We know we're in there together and doing this thing as a team. Are you pretty good about taking care of, uh, of your voice, um, your body, diet, exercise? On the road, I can imagine it, it can be super tough. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, I make it a point. Like on, on the road, I get in a routine. You know, I I like to get, and I got Greg Allman's blessing by reading his book, saying he tried to sleep as much as possible, especially as a vocalist. You got to rest your cords. So I I try to stay in my bunk, you know, 10, 8, even 12 hours a day just to not talk. And then I, I work out for at least an hour every day at the hotel gym, and I try to eat one great meal a day. I'm into food, so it's important for me to find a nice restaurant and go eat something good. And the nap, those are and the and the vocal warm up. I have a vocal coach named Donna Newman, who um, I found through my friend Citizen Cope. Him and his wife Alice Smith study with this woman, and Cope said, "Yeah, man, not to vocal lesson like every night, you know." And I said, what, really? <laughs> yeah, because she explained it. For him, he liked to be at 100% vocally before he hit the stage, not three songs into it. Right. You know what I mean? 
Um, for me, it's been great because I, I've had, I had vocal surgery in 2008. I had bilateral hemorrhages in my vocal folds no, at man. the peak of my touring career. I had to almost cancel my whole tour. I didn't cancel it. And I just limped through it after my doctors told me. So for that summer of 2008, except when I was on stage, I wasn't making any noise and it was enough to like break up our band, you know, wow. uh, cause us a huge setback in our draw, cancel too many shows and really, show me that, wow, I'm not indestructible. I'm not a kid anymore. Um, I can lose my career. I'm losing fans. I'm not the top of my game. Instead of wanting to go out there and put on a great show, I'm just worried about getting through without getting hurt anymore. So I had to check myself and I had my surgery as a success. And since then I worked more on my vocals and then yeah, the past, two years I've taken a vocal lesson before every single performance, whether it's a wow. radio show I'm going to in the morning just for three songs or a huge concert. I do a half hour with my teacher over the phone. It's, it's made a huge profound difference in my whole life. Like and my music has improved. My range has improved. I don't sing flat anymore. I don't think I, can sing harmonies. I used to come off the show and be not even be able to talk. Now I can come off and I'm I'm fine. You know, it's you know, knock on wood. Like I, the last two winter tours, last whole two years of touring, I never had a show where I was like, oh my god, am I gonna be able to do this? You know? Wow. So it's great. Thank you so much. You've been uh, incredibly generous with your time. I'm looking at your your schedule here, and I see that you have a a bunch of shows coming up: Arizona, California, Nevada. I uh, I don't see any in Texas, but I'll be checking your calendar and and make a make it a point to catch you next time you uh you come to Austin. Yeah, we'll definitely be back. We played Austin like three times last year, so we have to. I think this year we were gonna. I mean, I'm really hoping to get back to ACL. We were one of the core bands the first four year or the first five years we played four times, and now it's been about six or seven years since we've been back. So I'm really hoping to get back there one of these times and I certainly love my time in Austin and Stubbs is of course one of our favorite venues to play so hope to be back soon alright G thank you so much for your time I really enjoyed our conversation alright thanks so much I appreciate it thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode it would mean a lot to me if you can take a moment to visit iTunes and rate this podcast until next time 